This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, this is Morgan Lee, and you are listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I'm an assistant editor here, and today I am joined by my co-host, Caitlin Beatty. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Morgan. How's it going? It's going all right. I know you're crushed. I am crushed, devastated. I'm smiling right now, but I cried earlier this week because the Golden State Warriors collapsed on Sunday and I am still recovering. Well, we have someone who's actually perfect to walk us both through the <laughs> highs and lows of sports drama. We are joined today by Marcus Thompson. Hey, Marcus. You should not be crushed or depressed. You should be rejoicing. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> but because of all people, you Warriors fans should remember that there was a time when they didn't even make the playoffs. And now they're losing in the finals. That that's that's prog- that's great. You should be you should be joyful, Morgan. I'm glad you're not in the studio, so you can't see my eyes rolling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I so can feel him. I can yeah. <laughs> so Marcus is joining us from the Bay Area. He is a sports columnist for the Bay Area News Group, where he has reported on Bay Area sports for the past 16 years, including, of course, the aforementioned rise of the Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry. Marcus is an Oakland, California native. He is a husband, father, a self-described Christian hip-hop fan, a self-described lover of ties. Dope ties only, though. Not like any tie. It's got to be a dope tie. What's, what meets the requirement <laughs> of a dope tie? It can't look like my daughter bought it for me. That's number one. I'm really not a fan of skinny ties because I'm not skinny. Wait, you don't like skinny <laughs> ties, Marcus? They just look weird on me. You can't like like a skinny tie leading to a belly is just not a good look. It's like an upside down <laughs> exclamation point. It's like leading the viewer to look exactly at the thing you don't want them to <laughs> yeah, look right, at. I don't, I don't want that. I don't, yeah. I don't like that. Uh, but I like bold, distinct. I like ties with thickness. I, I don't know. I'm just real particular about ties. Last question. Bow ties. Are you okay? okay with those i'm okay with bow ties i just don't like the way they look on me but i see uh, other people and i'm like man i want to wear a bow tie and then i put it on and i look like an idiot so <laughs> well thank you for joining us and for sharing your strong opinions about ties already so let's talk about the warriors and the cavaliers so this past sunday the cleveland cavaliers beat the golden state warriors in game seven in oakland and this was the first championship for Cleveland as a city since 1964, and it was made even more unprecedented and remarkable because the Warriors at one time led the series three games to one before they lost three games in a row for the mm. first time since 2013. So one of the things that we're going to talk about today, we know that obviously the NBA Finals is a huge story and there's tons of aspects to pick out, but since the faith of the Warriors has been talked about a lot as the team has really grown to national prominence over the years, we really wanted to talk about the actions of their star, Steph Curry, in the Warriors' Game 6 loss to the Cavs. And so on this in this particular game, Steph Curry fouled out for the first time all year, and he reacted by throwing his mouth guard into the stands. Later, his wife Aisha tweeted that 
The game was, quote, absolutely rigged for money before she later deleted the tweet. And there was some pushback on Twitter about both of their actions. Some people said that Steph should be suspended. And there were a bunch of people on Twitter who went after Aisha for her remarks. And this kind of was a punctuation mark to other bursts of frustration that had occurred during the series. The Warriors' loss in Game 6 had followed another loss in Game 5 where Draymond Green had missed a game after being suspended for hitting LeBron James, who is the star player for the Cavs. I was wondering when you were going to bring up LeBron James. He seems to be like a central figure in this sports drama. Aren't you from Ohio? (laughs) I am. I'm not from Cleveland, but I am from Ohio, Dayton, Cincinnati. So we have both a Bay Area person as one host of the show and an Ohio person as the other host. Should have brought this up earlier. Yeah. So you guys guys keep it peaceful over there. Yeah, we're we're barely we're barely able to look each other in the eye. Believe it or not, though our mics that we're using are blue and gold. (laughs) We also have a red one in here too, so there's some symbolism behind that. So I'm interested in hearing everyone's gut reaction to the story right after I just take a moment to talk about Christianity Today magazine, which is what makes our podcast Quick to Listen possible. Christianity Today magazine offers redemptive yet honest coverage of people and events and ideas shaping the church and culture. So as a subscriber to this magazine, you get 10 award-winning print issues a year. You get access to the tablet and PDF editions of them. You get full web access to ChristianityToday.com. We have online archives on the site that date back to 1956. And right now we are giving away a special deal for those who listen to Quick to Listen. And that is a year-long subscription at our lowest rate, which is $10. So if that is a deal that you would like to take advantage of, which obviously for the four reasons we recommend, (laughs) you can go to orderct.com slash quick to listen and you will be able to get that. So it's orderct.com slash quick to listen. And I'm going to get us back to the discussion and time for a gut check about the specific incident in game six. Marcus, can you start us off? So my gut reaction was that uh, the Warriors are were very uncomfortable and in a position they had not been. And I was immediately thinking this could be either good or bad, but clearly they had lost their composure and they had been pushed to a brink. So my gut reaction was, I wonder what this leads to. I wonder how they will respond. Will they fall apart or will they rebound? That was dramatic. Rebound. It's a a sports pun. (laughs) Well, my gut check. So I was at the airport on Sunday night when game seven was going on and I was watching a group of people in a pub, in a restaurant, yelling back and forth at each other, yelling at the TV screen. And I just thought, I have no idea what's going on. I see LeBron James and Steph Curry on the TV screen. This must be really important. But I don't know why. (laughs) And that's why I'm happy to join the podcast today to learn more about why it's so important. Um, When I watched Game 6... I was with someone that told me multiple times that I needed to be calm and relax because the Warriors were going to be okay in game six. And he didn't start panicking until the last five minutes of the game, Hmm. whereas I'd been angry most of the game. So I felt that Seth's actions mirrored how I felt Hmm. at that moment. So you bonded with Steph in the mouthpiece toss. Steph was speaking for the Warriors. Hmm. Warriors Nation. 
I mean, did you feel like some of the calls were unfair? Did it seem like, you know, was there any truth to Aisha's comments yeah. about things? There was no truth to Aisha's comments, but her frustration is uh is valid. Uh, I mean, but that's if you've been anybody who's been watching the Warriors, they know the the way you defend you slow Steph Curry is to just be physical with him. You try to beat him up. You grab. You hold. You push. You shove. You do everything you can to overwhelm him physically. So it's it's not anything new. It's just that you expect the referee to to referee that and that's just been a frustration all year so uh usually though the the one who is least complaining about the physicality is Steph Curry so what i found is that when he gets to the point where he's that mad it's it's usually because he's right <laughs> because he he embraces it more than more than i would if i was his coach you know i would i would completely be on the ref's case for how much he gets grabbed and held but he likes to use it as a way to show that you know he's tougher than people think so when he got to that point that's when you knew he it had gone too far and usually in that sense he's right so so Aisha was right in the frustrations he wasn't alone but that doesn't mean it's rigged sometimes refs just suck I heard the rigged comment definitely as a reaction that people say when the basketball game is not going their particular way. Mm, like the exactly. only, the only explanation it's, for it's this. a way of basically, so I don't in baseball, you talk a lot about the baseball gods. I hear that a lot less in basketball about the basketball gods. So I think of usually all the ref comments as being directed towards the basketball gods. Okay. So I have a question for you, Marcus, as we jump into this larger discussion, you have been, following Steph the entire time that he's been on the Warriors. And so for people who are just kind of seeing him on this national stage and then watched him kind of blow up on game six, what what is the public missing from the story? That uh, I would say that, you know, he's probably when he gets to that point that he's right. Like he uh, people he. So if if Kobe Bryant did that, nobody would have a problem. Like they would, they would say, Oh, the black mama is mad. Right. Or uh, I know one of the narratives after Cleveland came back was, you know, that's what you get for poking the bear. Right. You don't mess with LeBron. You don't make him mad. Uh, what people don't get is that Curry is that same type of maniacal competitor. Like that, that's how he got here being six foot three and 120 pounds. Right. <laughs> is that, <laughs> with the face like a, a 12 year old. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. So he's probably even more in that way, like driven and competitive to make up for his lack of size. So I think people expect him to be this almost docile kind of cute star when really he's, he's a nut job in that level, just like the rest of them. Right. He, he believes beyond reason uh, you know his confidence is uh un- is just unbelievable and his desire to win is is relentless and just like it is for lebron just like it is for the rest of them so and when you allow for that it starts making sense right you start saying everybody else we would say oh he's mad now with steph we say oh what is he doing he's yeah his halo is getting dirty <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i I haven't followed his career as carefully as the two of you, but I, I certainly think there's a tension in having an athlete who's been very public about his Christian faith and speaking very publicly to that 
and then what we come to expect for that sports star's behavior on the court or on the field. It's like, do we do we really expect Christian athletes to be docile or to literally turn the other cheek? Like, no, to be an athlete, you have to be competitive. You have to be ruthless. You have to want to win. And yet those aren't virtues that we often think of as Christian or affiliate with Christian. So it seems like there's a tension there for Christian athletes in particular. Uh, no, no question. Uh, I mean, first off, it's a false premise to think Christianity is docile. Mm. <laughs> it's you know i mean that's that's a misrepresentation of a radical faith from to begin with i mean we're talking about people who are willing to die right <laughs> so that that's not docile at all that's that's the opposite it's 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 extremely radical and 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 people would say christians are crazy for that right so uh but then also to think that you could reach this level of greatness in not just basketball, but anything without these intangibles that like that's that's universal. Uh, no matter what the profession is, it's going to take a, another level of commitment, of drive, of passion, of fire to be one of the best ever at what you do. Right. <laughs> Whether it's podcasts or, you know, making shoes, whatever the case you know the best at at that possession at that profession will be somebody probably maniacal and insanely driven and and crazy ambitious and passionate right mm-hmm. that's just a trademark of being great yeah yeah i think what you're you're talking about marcus is ambition and yet that is not a word that a lot of christians allow themselves to be identified by like ambition is a bit of a dirty word and i think one of the questions we have to ask is what is the drive for is it you know what are you what are you driven by what is your passion all directed toward we have an easier time saying um you know if you're driven or passionate about serving others well that's that's fine but if you're driven by wanting to surely be excellent on the field or at your job it's like well we're not sure that's okay because that seems more self-serving or egotistical and and i'll admit that i i you know i have tension as someone who is not a sports fan i have trouble with some christian athletes behavior but i also realize that i'm biased you know and that i i have less of a bias when it comes to like writers i'm like yeah they should be excellent at what they do so you think i should be like insanely ambitious to take over the world with my pen (laughs) um are you going to use it to write about sports Yeah, that, that's that's so far. That's how it's been going. <laughs> I mean, you you do whatever you think God is calling you to do, Marcus. I, who am I to get in the way of your calling? So, Marcus, I know that you you know you've talked with Steph Curry many times. You know him as not just a player but a person. How would he articulate his faith, and does he talk about some of the tensions? of being a Christian athlete, a, a Christian superstar on the field. Is that something he's aware of and talks about? Uh, I think he's aware of it. I don't think he talks about it for the very reason that we're talking about it, because it creates, in his mind, it creates an impossible standard that he doesn't want to be held to. I remember when Dwight Howard came into the NBA, and he was a high school pick, number one pick overall, and he did an interview on 60 Minutes, I think. And he said, 
uh, he was going to save the league. He was going to bring Jesus into the NBA, and he was going to go so hard that eventually they would put a cross in the logo. Right. <laughs> and no, sir, he really did say that. He's going to be in the league converting souls. And basketball was just an evangelism tool for him. Uh, and now you fast forward and that <laughs> that's not even his bent anymore. And that is an example of what happens when you, you know, when, when you tout yourself as this, uh, not even just as a Christian, but as a person who has, you know, uh, is being guided by the Holy Spirit with that invites from the world and, and, and inability to be normal, right? You can't, you can no longer do things that everybody else does. I think Steph, from my just analysis of how he operates, he wants to be seen as uh, one of the guys, as somebody who is like uh, sanctified, but not holier than thou, right? He wants to, he wants to, so when it comes down to like, you know, if you ask him about his faith, he will tell you, but he's not going to go beat his chest about his faith. His mindset is just look at how I live and let that be your guide. Yeah, Marcus, uh, you wrote a big column about that earlier this year, about that's Steph's preferred MO. I did, after the uh, after his uh, very veiled and empty comments about the North Carolina bathroom situation. Uh, but my stance was, he didn't say his stance, he didn't reveal how he felt about it. And in the absence of words, you should probably look at how people live and make the judgment off that. And even with words, right? Like, even no matter what people say, I still say, look at look at your life and let that be the determination of what kind of people or what kind of Christian someone is. So that that's his mantra. He just says, hey, let's just I'm going to live a certain way. I want to be an example. And whatever comes of that comes of that. But he's not going to be the one out there touting himself because in moments like game six, when he is human, it get, it'll get held against them, right? Whereas if anybody else did the exact same thing, there would be no there would be no podcast discussion about it. Yeah, I, I hear you saying, Marcus, that someone like Steph doesn't want to create for himself a, a crazy standard by which the world can then use to judge him or critique him or say, "Oh, you're you're a hypocrite because you called yourself a Christian, but you threw your mouth guard <laughs> at the dude in in row two. So he's saying, "I'm a human. You know, this is my this is my faith, and this is what I believe. And yet, I'm human." And I also think of the Francis Assisi quote, you know. Uh, preach the gospel. Well, actually, it wasn't spoken it wasn't by Francis yeah. Assisi, but, but it's often but attributed. I know what you mean. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> preach the gospel if necessary. Use words. Um, I think there's a tension there, right? Because we wouldn't want Steph to deny his faith verbally, and yet we we recognize that Christian witness is more than just saying certain words that declare faith. It's an embodiment. It's a lifestyle. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Eisinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Which is also interesting to me because when you're an athlete, like your life is your sport in many ways. And so the good, bad and ugly will be shown up in the place where you spend the most time. That's just how it is. And so if you're a Christian and you decide you're becoming a fan of an athlete who's also a Christian, you should expect to see all of those things in their life to some extent and not be surprised if you see something that makes you feel uncomfortable because you know that the person on the other end is not going to be perfect at all times. Mm -hmm. If people in the world uh, who have not carried that banner of Christ, like, you know, they're going to say what they're going to say. My my issue is with the people who, who also are carrying their cross and then turn and point to, oh, look what he's doing. It's like, if anybody, if anybody should understand the difficulty of carrying a cross, it should be people who are also carrying a cross. <laughs> and, and we should be able to say, like, like, I understand. I understand what just happened there in game six. Like, I can get that because I've been there. So are you are you referring, Marcus, to other Christians who are calling stuff out for the mouth guard incident? <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I don't even think the mouth guard incident was that bad. Uh, he's thrown his mouth guard before. Uh, but so, in game look, six of the NBA finals, yeah, exactly. I mean. Like, look, if it's wrong, it's wrong, right? It ain't wrong because of the stage. He threw, he threw his mouthpiece in game seven against the Clippers in the first round. That was also on a national stage because Donald Sterling's situation had everybody's eyes on that series. He got mad at the lack of fouls, threw his mouthpiece, and almost led him back in a in a return. He threw his mouthpiece against uh, Oklahoma City in Oracle. He made a three, was frustrated with himself, threw his mouthpiece. I mean, he does it. So if it's wrong in game six, that means it's wrong every time he does it. When, when he did it in game five, he misses a three, Misses like five threes, makes one, gets mad at himself, throws it. The reaction then was, look at him, he's really into the game. Or, oh man, he, you could tell he really wants it. And then in game six, it's, oh, that's so unchristian. Like, pick, pick one. Now, now, it's different because he hit a fan. Right. That's, <laughs> that's, yeah. You don't think the fan was flattered? Yeah. yeah he, <laughs> you don't think they're the gonna fan. try to sell that on eBay? And then Curry personally apologized. I think that's okay. Immediately, think, right? So that's uh, the type of stuff I looked at. Like yeah. immediately he apologized, right? Immediately he saw and he said, "My bad. I didn't mean to hit you." He shook the guy's hand, shook the hand of the guy next to him. For me, I, uh, I don't think it's the behavior that defines the Christian. It's much more, you know, the follow up to the behavior because everybody behave, everybody at some point behaves in manner that is uh, unapproved. The question is, do do we humble ourselves and acknowledge it and recognize it and seek improvement, or do we try to justify it and you know and pass it off as okay? So Steph knew what he did was wrong. He knew cursing out the ref was wrong. Right? Wait, he uh, cursed out the ref? Oh come on, you didn't watch that. <laughs> No, <laughs> he definitely dropped some BS bombs at the referee. That's why he got ejected from the game. We're gonna have to bleep off. that out of the podcast. You said BS. We don't. <laughs> I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> You're hurting Caitlin's ears here. No, I'm sorry. Well, I nah. think I think there's a tension here, not just for 
you know, star athletes who are Christians, but for anybody in the public square where you're being given a lot of fame and attention and praise and you're lifted up as a hero, I have to think that the virtue of humility is really hard in that position because you're getting constant positive feedback about how great you are. And it, and if you are that great, which obviously Steph Curry is, how much harder it would be to be a humble person. And I'm just wondering, does, does Steph Curry have people in his life who are, you know, off the field, who are behind the scenes, like discipling him? I think a lot of our listeners would want to know that Christian athletes have people in their lives who are discipling them, holding them accountable. So I'm wondering about that for Steph Curry? Well, in that vein, I would say he's more advanced than most athletes who wear the Christian name. First off, his mother is a devout Christian who stays on his case. Okay. (laughs) That's that's number one. Like, if she catches him, you know, like, I'm sure he got a call from his mom after that game six, you know, meltdown. I would wager that if I was a gambling man. But uh, he he does have that circle. He keeps the circle really tight. His college friend, so a guy he played with in college, uh, they're real kind of tight in the word together. Uh, the owner of a clothing line called Active Faith, uh, I think Steph Curry's part owner. I know that that guy and, and Steph are are kind of they have a relationship that's founded on spirituality. I know after Curry got hurt in Game Four when he when he fell on his knee and, and nobody knew if it was an ACL or he was done or not. After the game, he and that and a few people had like a prayer circle right in the in the you know as they were leaving, it's just like right. They just stopped and had a little prayer circle. Him and the guy from uh, Active Faith. He's got his wife, you know. Uh, he's he's got a he's got a nice little circle of people who keep him grounded, which is why he tends to react properly. Uh, whenever something goes wrong, it'll happen, but his response is usually always exactly how you would draw it up even when he's the one making the mistake or if he's the victim of somebody else's behavior no matter what he usually tends to after time have the response that you would approve of from a christian perspective since we've been not very nice to the Cavs and lebron we haven't even mentioned lebron or the cavaliers i'm offended i just wanted to dedicate this last question to them um in particular i wanted to talk about the word redemption used in a sports context. So when LeBron came back to the Cavs two years ago, people were talking about how he was somehow going to be redeemed when he came back. Hmm. Of course, this is after he dramatically left Cleveland on a national or ESPN televised event known as The Decision. And you can look it up if you missed that moment in sports lore. So he, he won two titles with Miami and then he came back and then even I searched LeBron James redemption earlier today and saw a lot of headlines that mm. connoted it in um, context to the Cavs victory this week. And so my question, I guess, is what does redemption mean in sports and what can be redeemed on the court and what can't? I mean, by just simple definition, redemption is to get your value restored, is to, you know, to get whatever it is you had back. So... LeBron was, in this situation, was considered one of the great figures of modern sports, especially before he left. I think his decision knocked him down to what many would think is a typical athlete. Before he was atypical, he was a guy, he's been famous since he was 16 years old, 
from a broken neighborhood, a dysfunctional family, and he managed to go all his time, and he he kind of rose above all of the typical trappings that most most people in his position fall in line with. Like he didn't see him go to jail, he didn't see him having a bunch of kids or in strip clubs or caught with weed or like he seemed to get you know avoid all of that despite the massive stardom. I think the worst thing he did was probably getting caught taking those uh, authentic throwback jerseys back when throwbacks were all the rage. <laughs> Right, that like that was like the worst thing he had done. At least that had come to the public eye. I don't know what he does, and, and he, for me, at least in my eyes, and why I held him in a certain esteem was because there was all these expectations and pressure on him. Uh, he signed a ninety million dollar Nike contract before he even played his first NBA game, so all these expectations were on him. And he always still kind of rose above it. He handled himself properly. He wasn't a, like a nut job on the court. He didn't have a, you know, a reputation for being a, a bad dude, you know, so he kind of managed that well. And I think the decision, you know, to leave Miami and how he did it, like turned him into a villain and made him a typical selfish, whatever athlete. So the redemption and him coming back. Is him getting back to that position of being a worthy, revered kind of cultural icon and not the typical selfish athlete. I think that's what the redemption he earned because he went back to Cleveland and did something that really wasn't just about him when the decision was all about him, right? So I think any chance America can, they take it when it comes to demeaning a star athlete like there's very little room for error especially african-american athletes it comes quick when it's time to to knock them off the pedestal Kim Newton. Uh, <laughs> well i'm also yeah i'm also struck by the theme of loyalty in in the narrative about lebron james like he was perceived to be forsaking his roots or you know he had gotten too big for his own hometown and he he abandoned his roots apparent you know as the story goes i mean i think what happened on sunday in game seven was this validation of that narrative like you cut you're loyal to your hometown you're loyal to your roots and good things happen to you if you can transcend the lure of money or of a sexier team or a sexier town because Miami versus Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You will be redeemed. You know, you will you will be restored, as as Marcus was saying. But, but it's all superficial, anyway. I mean, I mean, what, what, what? are we talking about? Sports here? are it's superficial. All... What do you mean? No, I mean, I don't know LeBron, so I, I can't say how he is off the court. But what, like, if he said, "I'm gonna go to Cleveland because hey, I can own Cleveland," as opposed to going to New York, where mm-hmm. I'd be a bit like, is that really? Uh, that's probably a more selfish mindset <laughs> right not right so it's like i mean we just are quick to affix this stuff on people obviously we don't know all the evidence we don't know what kind of person he is but like stuff like that like we call athletes classy or classless based on how they act in a game for me that's never made sense some people like like richard sherman right he's classless because uh, in a playoff after the playoff game he's screaming at Kaepernick and he talks a lot of trash on the court it's like but everywhere off the court he's the definition of classy so so which one are we weighing here in the end they are playing a game so 
how they operate inside the confines of that game uh, must be put in the context of that game. So, uh, like, I, I just don't like I don't agree with labeling people any certain kind of way based off limited information when how they live their lives, which for me is much more valuable, is a greater determination. Right. Like like some of these dudes don't raise their kids mm-hmm. <laughs> and like and I'm like, the, like, that's classless to me. I don't care how you carry yourself on the court. You might shake hands after the game. But if your son doesn't know you well. Like, what did you really accomplish? So I always have reservations about labeling athletes that I don't know positive or negatively because we just don't know. I'm just struck by how easy it is. So, you know, as you're saying, Marcus, like the game is a game. The the stakes are in some sense arbitrary. It's whatever we whatever meaning we assign to the game. And yet, obviously, our culture assigns enormous meaning enormous. to these yep. games like they they tap into identity. They tap into race and class issues. They tap into how we determine who to lift up as a role model. One of the first times I ever saw my dad cry was when the Cincinnati Reds won the world championship in 1991 and he's like jumping oh, around. See how she snipped in the shot Ohio over the Bay Area? Yeah, Did you yeah. that, Morgan? Wow. Yeah, I, I hear you, Caitlin. Yeah. Wow, like, <laughs> that's pretty good though. That's clever for a non-sports fan. That's clever. Yeah, it's like on one <laughs> level, it's like, oh my gosh, this is this is just a game. Like the outcome doesn't matter and yet the outcome for our culture hugely matters. And I think that tells us something about who we are as people, that we assign these really intense narratives to what's happening on the court. But sports function in many ways as easier to digest ways to talk about really heavy and intense subjects that are going on Hmm. and to have conversations that are difficult to have about things that seem, quote unquote, really important. And you can have them through a sports lens much of what happens on sports is is symbolic of something else so right. when marcus is talking about not being able to parse through the motives of lebron's decision it, in the sports world sometimes you'll see people write out the word narrative with a capital n right what is the narrative uh. that's going on and there's all these different narratives that we really gravitate to and love and the homecoming narrative here this loyalty narrative that we love and that says something about our communities and where we belong to and what type of values that we all have and and what type of person a person ultimately is at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I do think that there was another, another narrative that went on, which is this like Bay area versus Cleveland narrative and the different places that they show where our country is today, because Mm -hmm. in many ways they couldn't occupy further points on the spectrum as far as like what the breadth of the United States looks like you know i'm watching this cleveland bay area thing play out i'm so oakland that sometimes i feel like i forget that the bay area you know it's a very different place when you when you consider the whole bay area including silicon valley and all the wealth that's here it's just odd for me to see oakland as the wealthy snooty place right so i look at it like man oakland and cleveland i feel like there should be kindred spirits there but Cleveland doesn't see it that way, right? <laughs> Cleveland sees it as the Bay Area and, you know, you, you know, you fancy and you think you guys are learning. And I'm like, wait, this is, it West wasn't Coast until I, liberals. Yeah, right. I had to pull back like, wait a second. I, I get it. But I'm like, for number one, just from a team perspective, the Warriors waited 40 years for a championship. I mean, it wasn't 52, but like there should be some, you know, some like natural kind of friendly rivalry there instead of the bitterness. But Mm. did you see that look that LeBron gave staff? Uh Uh-uh. 
I didn't like that. And, you know, I said this on Twitter and I got killed for it, but I didn't like it for the reasons that, uh, that I talked about before. Le- LeBron has always been bigger than that to me. Like in the NBA, he's all like, he is the guy who they foul hard regularly and he never responds with venom and anger. Right. And, and he, and he, he'll talk. Like, like he'll celebrate his accomplishments, but it's with his team, right? Or it's by himself. Like, he's not the kind that'll do this and then demean his opponent. I always have loved that about LeBron. We're going full circle now, aren't we? Yeah, right. Hey. Like, no, because it, the example for me is, is more important than anything. And as, as, as a Bible class teacher, I've used LeBron many occasions, <laughs> right? From what I can see of him, like I can, I can use that for j- just on several levels. He's a, a good example. And I, I was just disappointed to see that out of him. I know it felt good for Cleveland, but I was like, come on, LeBron, you're great anyway. You don't need to do that. Almost like the whole old people say, act like you've been there before. Like, that's what I felt like the old get off my lawn. Dude. <laughs> At this point, we are going to wrap the conversation. Hopefully you have lots of things to chew on and points you want to make to any of us in this conversation. There is a place that you can do that online, and that is on Twitter at CT Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. And there we will always welcome your thoughts and opinions. So now is the time of the show that we have something called Precious Moments. The time we intentionally take to celebrate something that is bringing us joy in our lives. And this week, I've asked everyone to tell us about an athlete, alive or dead, a non-NBA athlete, and tell us why that that person brings you some joy. So it was a toss-up between Air Bud (laughs) and Bugs Bunny in Space Jam, because both of these movies were formative to me as a 12 and 13 year old and I have honestly not followed sports that much since then so both the versatility of the golden retriever who played Air Bud I'm impressed and for more of my important thoughts on movies from the 90s you can follow me on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty so my favorite athlete is Serena Williams Serena Williams is probably the has also been the source of lots of sports sadness for me though in the last three majors that she's played in where she has lost in the semifinals and then the finals in both the Australian Open and the French Open. But like everything in sports, there's always another opportunity for redemption. I use that word. Mm -hmm. And that is at Wimbledon, which is starting up. So I love Serena. She brings me immense amount of joy, partially because of the fact that she has so much joy when she's on the tennis court. I love Watching her play, I wrote an essay about her last year. She was Sportswoman of the Year, and it was in this amazing article. And she has suffered a lot in her life and Mm -hmm. has used her own experiences with pain to reach out to other people in pain Mm. and is a really remarkable human being. You can find me and my non-chill sports self online at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. On Twitter. On Twitter. So you stole mine. No, it can be the same. It can be the same. I want to know why you love Serena. You know what I like about her? She really loses with the grace. I know she's had some blow ups. You know, she's known for, you know, run ins with the officials and stuff. But when she loses and when it's all over, she gives a lot of credit to the other side and her going back to Indian Wales. Oh, my word. No, I feel like, you know. You know, she gets she gets a bad rap a lot. And, and a lot of people don't like her for reasons that have nothing to do with tennis. And I like that it doesn't even matter. 
right? And she gives she gives a different example for young people, especially young women, about like what beauty is, what strength is, what how women are supposed to be. For me, I, I would have said her, but since you hating on my uh, oh. my sample, I think I'm gonna have to go with uh, Diana Taurasi. Diana Taurasi is like my all time favorite women's basketball player because she is a baller. And she's got she's the first woman I seen who was really good and had like the swag that you see and like in playground hoops like, you know, she she will talk trash. She she goes for fancy plays, you know, and, and she's still playing. She's like an OG in the game. But like when she was at UConn, when women's basketball was this like kind of rigid, boring, fundamentally based sport, she was like the <laughs> the black sheep in that sense. She was out here <laughs> dropping dimes and talking trash. She just played like quote unquote a guy, right? She played like somebody who grew up on playgrounds and stuff. So I was always captivated by that and just to watch her career blossom. And if you really want to like ruin your life with crazy tweets about stuff that don't matter, you can follow me at, at Thompson Scribe, but you do so at your own risk. So that's it for now and for us this week. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen as we foray into the sports world. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Alred, and special thanks to Kate Shellnut. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Overcast. And if you like the show, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes because it's super helpful to us. We will see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.